years ago, I went back to Tennessee to visit some family and friends. And I stayed at my mom's house, uh, and I went through some of the things in my old bedroom. And let me tell you, that was quite a find. <laughs> uh, in one of my dresser drawers, I, I found a treasure trove of things from my old school days. Report cards, and test results, and school projects, and journals, and all kinds of things that I had kept. And I excitedly wanted to read my report cards because I couldn't wait to get a peek into what I was like as an elementary school student, a middle school student, like from their point of view, you know? Like I had my own memories, which are more accurate in my opinion, but you know, like as an adult who works with children, I was like, okay, like what did my adults think about little Taryn, you know? And so I actually have uh, some of my report cards to share with you. So this one coming up is from first grade. Uh, and yeah, I know, it's so cute. Uh, <laughs> and so I want to just highlight yeah, my teachers wrote comments every six weeks. And so on the fifth six weeks, my teacher, Mrs. Whitten, she wrote, I enjoy Taryn and all of the clever things she comes up with. She keeps me smiling. Now that I'm an adult, I know that that is teacher code for she talks my head off, <laughs> but she cracks me up with her crazy ideas and TMI about your family, right? <laughs> That's what that means. See, I know the code now. And my fourth grade report card, Mrs. Baber was my teacher, and I never thought she liked me when I was growing up. Like, all the way through her class, I, I never thought she liked me. But, um, She's really tough on me, and I found out later as an adult that she does indeed like me, and we're Facebook friends, so, you know, that's a success. But she, this is what she wrote on my fifth six weeks. Fifth six weeks was tough for me, guys. She wrote, efforts have improved some, still bringing things to school that distract her. <laughs> and I've got to be honest, I felt really called out, you know? Like... So what? You bring some skateboards and a yo-yo and a slinky and, you know, some squeezy ninja guys and maybe some nunchucks or, you know, whatever. And then, like, suddenly that makes you a distraction. What's up with that, you know? I don't really see it. How could you say that? But then... You know what? I was able to take in the whole picture from all of these reports. And I found my standardized test scores from first grade all the way up to my ACT. That was informative. For example, math. In general, all of my life, math has felt like it was designed to remind me that I am not good at everything lest I should boast, right? Um, up until this point, I thought I had only learned geometry in 10th grade from Miss Calico. That was the first time I remember learning it. Nope. Turns out they were testing me all of these years. And reading those official test scores made me realize that I should be proud of the fact that I passed geometry by one point in 10th grade that that, in fact, was improvement. <laughs> and I'll have you know that I went on to, co to uh, college and I passed college algebra with a B plus 
in my undergrad after I took it the second time. <laughs> True story. Improvement! Compared to those test scores, improvement. And you know what? It got me to thinking that report cards are a pretty universal experience for us. And for a lot of us, report cards were a stressful time. Not for me, but for a lot of us. And we might be scared of like what our parents are going to say, or we might be hoping that we've done enough to pull our grades up, or whatever it might be happening in our world. And the older we get, the more serious they become. And it seems like more is at stake than it did when we were in first grade or fourth grade. And like it or not, they grant us a snapshot into who we are in the area of academia. On my ACT test, I scored so low in the math section that I had to take two remedial courses my freshman year in college. But I tested so high in the language component that I automatically skipped two intro level classes that same year. And my report cards leading up to my ACT test largely show the same story about me, that I haven't really changed that much in that degree. And all of this got me to thinking about our fifth and final core value of transformation. Because on the one hand, it is fascinating to see in print the things I've always been good at, you know, the things that haven't really changed that much about me. And then on the other hand, to see how I've improved in other areas of my life and how I think differently. And I thought about this metaphor in my spiritual life. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but sometimes so often I have to wonder if I'm doing it right, if I'm being a Christian right, if I'm following Jesus right or good. Am I reading scripture enough? Or, oh man, you know what, I probably should have given that man on the street holding that sign a few dollars. If I were more generous, then I would have done that. If I were a better Christian, I would have known how to handle this conflict correctly. Or, oh great, I just messed up in front of my kids. They heard me cussing at the TV. You know, I mean, things like that are always going through our minds. And wouldn't it be nice if God just gave us a report card every six weeks <laughs> and wrote comments? You know, like, I really like that prayer you made this quarter. Keep it up. You know, or, wow, you've really improved on your scripture reading. And that's great. Gold star, you know. Or, I really want you to start working on having more patience. I need to see some improvement this next quarter. Oh, or, I really enjoyed those clever things you come up with. You keep me smiling. <laughs> you just be like, thank you, God. Yeah. It'd be so much easier to know how we're doing, right? And to know what does God think about us and whether or not we're improving or growing like we're supposed to. This transformation is hard. And you, can, you can't really see it happening at the time. And so it's hard to see if it's happening at all. And it's hard to measure and evaluate. And there are tests, but there's no official reports. And it seems so subjective. So if transformation is our pursuit, how do we pursue something that is arguably hard to see and hard to measure and seemingly subjective? Well, at BCC, scripture is our starting point, right? So let's go there for an answer to these questions. There's a man in the Bible 
that you might be somewhat familiar with. And when I think of transformation, oh, I think of him immediately. His name is Peter. And his transformation is palpable, and it can be seen in the scripture. It can be measured, and it's not subjective. So we're going to dive into his story and just kind of do a big, a big overview of him and his life. When we first meet Peter in the Gospels, it's because Jesus is inviting him to be a disciple. And Peter is a fisherman by trade, along with his brother and a few other friends. And this fact alone tells us a lot about Peter. In, the, in Jewish culture, uh, at this time, boys went to school and learned from their local rabbi until about the age of 12. And from the rabbi, they would have learned the Torah, uh, meaning memorizing passages at length and some basic theology and, and interpretation. And the majority of boys were then released to continue their trade, uh, most likely in the family business. And it was only a select few individuals that were chosen by a rabbi to be a disciple. And the rabbi would have had to have seen enormous potential academically and intelligence in order to take on a disciple for further training. And to be asked to be a disciple would have been an, an amazing honor but also a sacrifice that your family would have had to make because men were great economic earners of their households. And we find Peter as a fisherman with his brother and his two friends who were also brothers, James and John. And that tells us a lot about Peter's what Peter's report card would have looked like. And most likely, Peter would have known Jesus at the very least as an acquaintance growing up. So Peter and Jesus would have been around the same age as each other, and that makes me wonder, did they go to school together? Were they playground buddies? Did they make sure to pick each other first for their kickball teams? Did Peter ask Jesus to copy his homework every now and then? You know, it happens. And regardless, we know that Jesus' choice of Peter was intentional. As a rabbi, he saw potential in his student and potential that no one else had seen. And as we explore the stories of Peter, let's kind of mentally fill in his report card and see how he measures up. Mark's gospel has the most stories about Peter by name, and there's a reason for that. And it's widely understood and accepted that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's accounts, verbal accounts, written down. Mark is the man in Acts called John Mark, and he and Peter traveled together for several years, spreading the gospel. And Mark's gospel seems to reflect Peter's personality. It's quick and succinct, highlighting all the action in his story. I imagine Mark and Peter, they're in a boat, and they're traveling to their next destination. Mark's like, okay, you know, drawing those stories out of Peter, and he says, all right, let's start at the beginning. How was Jesus born? And Peter's like, man, I don't know any of that. It's not important. Let's start at the most important day, the day he met me. <laughs> That's where the real action begins. And Peter becomes one of Jesus' disciples. And pretty much any time that any of the Gospels mention the disciples as a group, we can be sure that Peter was present. That means that Peter was present for the Sermon on the Mount. He was there for the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and he probably helped gather up the leftovers, all those baskets. 
He was on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm that had overtaken them in the middle of the night. He was there when the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders questioned Jesus about his disciples' behavior, like why they picked wheat on the Sabbath to eat, counting as work, and why they didn't wash their hands before they ate a meal. I imagine Peter kind of getting caught right in that moment. You know, he, he picks some wheat because he's hungry. They're walking everywhere. And the Pharisees kind of slink up, and they're like, what's with this, Jesus? Why are your disciples picking wheat on the Sabbath? Don't they know that's work? And Peter's like mid-bite, mid you know, and he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> he's talking about me. Oh, hide it. But then he's there to hear Jesus defend and give a new interpretation of what that scripture really means. Peter was there to witness the first-hand miracle healings that Jesus could just touch someone and they would be healed. That someone could touch Jesus and they would be healed. And that sometimes Jesus didn't need to do anything but speak a word and a person in another city could be healed. And in Mark 6, we read about Jesus walking on the water. And if you've ever been to Sunday school at all, you probably know the rest of the story. That Peter wants to walk on the water too. And he says, Jesus, call me out to you. And so he does. Jesus calls him out of the boat. And he takes a few steps, but then he starts sinking. And for some reason, Mark's gospel leaves that part of the story out. <laughs> Matthew is the one that tells us that Peter is sinking and got out of the boat at all. It probably wasn't one of his best moments, right? He's like, don't put that in there. No one needs to know. Matthew's like, yeah, they do. <laughs> right? On one particular day, Jesus is teaching a crowd that included religious leaders. And he was teaching them about inner purity. And his teaching offended the Pharisees, and it confused the disciples. Peter, spokesperson of the group. And later on in private, Peter's the one who isn't scared to say, Jesus, we don't get it. Teach us what this means. We're confused. We don't understand. And another time, after hearing a parable of an unforgiving debtor, Peter speaks up and asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And Peter thinks he's being pretty generous until Jesus answers, no, 70 times seven. Or in other words, infinity. And Peter was present with James and John, those best friend brothers mentioned earlier, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop. In a miraculous event, Moses and Elijah appear, and they're talking with Jesus in front of Peter, James, and John. Matthew tells us that Peter, upon seeing the three of them together, cries out, Lord, it is wonderful for us to be here today. I'll make three memorials, one for each of you. But Mark's gospel gives us a little extra detail about why Peter said that. It says in Mark 9, six, verse 6, it says, He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Boy, can I relate to Peter. <laughs> when you don't know what to say, you just start talking. That's how you come up with all the clever things that people enjoy. And there can't be silence, so let's just talk. I don't know what to say, you know. And I imagine him telling Mark, like Mark's listening to all of this. Mark wasn't there. 
And Mark's like, oh, my gosh, you saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus? And Peter's like, yeah, man. And, and Mark says, what would you do? And he was like, I didn't know what to do. So I just talked. Immediately after this, the Gospels tell us that Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they walked down the mountain to meet up with the rest of the disciples. And Jesus told them, don't tell anybody about this. Nobody. And so after this, they're traveling to a new city. And the three of them, Peter, James, and John, they start arguing about who is the greatest. They're arguing about who's the goat. And I imagine this scene where, like, you know, there's a whole troop of them, and Jesus is up ahead, and the other disciples are back, and these three are just hanging out in the back. They're just kind of chatting among themselves, like making sure that no one else hears them. They're like... So who do you think? Who's the greatest? Like, someone has to be the greatest. Well, we know it's not the other nine because they weren't even invited to the mountain. So it's got to be one of the three of us. Which one is it? And I imagine that Peter looks at them and goes, guys, it's obviously me. Duh, I was picked as disciple first. First means best. Hello. And James and John, I imagine they kind of scoff at him. They're like, pfft. Yeah, you know what? You were also the first at? You were the first to sink. <laughs> you know? They kind of faint and they're drowning. They're like, Jesus doesn't want a disciple that's going to sink, Peter. You're not the goat. Get out of here. Got to be one of us. Peter is known for speaking before he sinks. Peter rebukes Jesus when he tells the disciples that he will be crucified. And Jesus washes all of the disciples' feet. And at first, Peter is like, no way. You're too good to wash my feet. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus tells him, listen, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't be one of my disciples. And so Peter goes, oh, well, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. Get it all. He's an all or nothing kind of guy. Jesus predicts Peter's denial of him, and Peter is indignant. He says, I will never desert you. Never. Even if everyone else does, I won't. I'm the goat. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never deny you. And in the end, we know that Peter's passion and his words are quicker than his commitment could ever keep up with. And when Jesus is arrested and taken to the high priest's house, In the middle of the night, Peter follows closely behind, hoping not to be noticed. He is recognized by a servant girl and a few others, and he denies being a disciple of Jesus. He denies ever even knowing him. Oh, the feeling that Peter must have felt in those next hours and days. He didn't come to the crucifixion. He couldn't bear to. He had denied Christ, his rabbi, his messiah, his friend. There's no way he must have thought that Jesus would even want to see him after that glorious display of failure. And I imagine that he just ruminated on his fierce rebuttal. I'll never deny you. I'll die with you replaying that scene over and over in his head as he hides in a room. And he must have recalled Christ's teaching, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will 
also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And I wonder, was it here that Peter realized that he's not the greatest after all? Peter's report card is not one to take home. But we know what happens next, right? Jesus resurrects. He's alive. And Mark's gospel says that Jesus told the women, go and tell the disciples, including Peter, that I'm going ahead of them to Galilee and to meet me there. And Peter can't believe it. But he runs to the tomb first to check things out and make sure it's actually empty. Rather than heading straight to Galilee to meet Jesus, he runs to the tomb. Because he doesn't want to get his hops up, right? Old Peter, he can't trust anybody but himself. And then we turn the page from the Gospels, and suddenly Peter is like this different person. He's preaching with boldness. He's quoting scripture from memory, prophecies from Joel, and from the Psalms that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus and repenting daily, the scripture says. And Peter heals a blind beggar, and it causes such a commotion in the city that Peter sees an opportunity to preach again, and then he gets arrested and placed in jail overnight. And the next morning, he's taken to the high priest's house, Caiaphas the same place where Jesus was taken the night of his arrest. Imagine what is running through Peter's head in that moment. I imagine he's walked through that courtyard where he was not that long ago, where he had stood and denied ever knowing Christ. But that was the old Peter. That was the scared Peter. That was the Peter that spoke before thinking. He's not that Peter anymore. Acts 4 says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he defends his actions of the healing. And the members of the council were amazed. And scripture says, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. No special training. That part hadn't changed. What had changed is that Peter was a man who had been with Jesus. Peter was ordered to never preach, teach, or even say the name of Jesus again. And he replies that he cannot stop telling everything he had seen and heard about Christ. Not too long after this incident, Peter is arrested again. He had already been warned to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus, and he is flogged and released. And as he is walking out of the jail after his flogging, we are told that he left the high council rejoicing that God had counted him worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Who is this guy? This isn't the end, though. Our Bibles include two letters by, written by Peter, aptly named 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And these two letters were written about a year or two apart from each other and only about a year before Peter's death. He's an old man now, 
he's an OD, original disciple. <laughs> and he's writing to believers, and he's encouraging them to stay strong in the midst of suffering and persecution. And they are experiencing this because of their belief in Christ. And in the second letter, he reminds them of how false teachers operate and to steer clear of them. In his first letter, he writes, there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine and it is being tested as a fire tests and purifies gold. Peter's been through his fair share of trials. He prods his readers to prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. <laughs> Peter is teaching about self-control? The guy that blurts out everything before speaking? The guy who feels silence with just exclamations of things? What in the world? Then he writes, remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. The guy who argued about who is the greatest. Telling us, God doesn't have any favorites. He knows he's not the goat. But now he knows that he was never supposed to be. And that it doesn't matter anymore what his position is. Then he writes, don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. Have you ever given someone advice that you actually needed for yourself? A man who had gone back to fishing in the days following Jesus' death and his denial of being a disciple in the first place reminds us and encourages us, don't go back to who you once were. And I wonder and imagine that as he's writing, Peter recalls all the times that he encountered Jesus while fishing. And his last day of fishing is when Jesus shows up on the shore, and there they are, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, just like the day that Jesus first called them. And John's gospel tells us that upon recognizing it was Jesus, Peter jumps out of the boat and starts swimming to the shore, leaving all the other guys to roll the boat in. And Jesus mentions something about being hungry, and so they cook up fish for breakfast. And while they're eating together, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. And Peter emphatically answers each time, yes, I love you. You know that I love you. Just enough times to match the three denials Peter had spoken a few days earlier. Isn't that a coincidence? Peter writes in his letter, for love covers a multitude of sins. They need to know that, he thinks. And I imagine that Peter evaluates his life. How he started out as just a regular old guy with no special training. And then Jesus walked up to him and called him and everything changed. And all of the adventures he had been on, all the things he had witnessed, the things that he had learned, the biggest regrets, the redemption and the forgiveness that Jesus offered. The, he became a teacher. He became a leader. He traveled the world. He was persecuted and beaten and flogged. And oh, and one more thing to add at the end. He writes in his first letter, it is no shame to suffer being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. 
who is this guy? When our team was initially meeting to pray through and discern our core values, I was adamant that transformation be added to the list. I might have even stated that we weren't going to leave that room until transformation was agreed upon, <laughs> like it or not. And I have noticed something throughout this core value series, that scripture is our starting point. Relationships are our priority. Generosity is our lifestyle. Devotion is our identity. I realize that all of these things can be done independently of each other, and you can be a good Christian by doing these things. But transformation is such that it informs and encompasses all of our other core values. BCC's big idea today is that transformation is our pursuit. Because if we are not transforming, then we are just performing in order to get a good grade on our report card. I mentioned earlier that transformation is hard to evaluate and measure. It happens when you're just going throughout your daily life. And so what are the things that we can do to pursue transformation and not make it a performance? Well, I have four things for us this morning. That no matter where you are in your journey, no matter how long you've been a Jesus follower, you might be a veteran or a newbie or somewhere in between, all of you can continue to pursue and measure transformation with these four things. The first one is to spend time with God. Peter did not become the man who wrote those letters without having spent time with God. His daily interactions with Christ are what changed him into the man we read about. And as we discussed, he was more than likely a pretty average guy getting average grades on his report card. His time spent with God is what transformed him. Now, obviously, he had a little leg up on the rest of us in the fact that he got to walk in the flesh with Jesus, right? But Jesus has given us our, the Holy Spirit to walk with us as a companion for not being here in the flesh. And our spending time with God doesn't have to be only reading the Bible. Peter didn't have a Bible. Peter would have regularly attended services at the local synagogue. And reading our Bibles is good, and it's how I most often connect with God. But there are so many more ways. You might not be a reader. You might not be designed like that. That's okay. Our weekly worship gatherings, attending and engaging right here, is a place where you can connect with God and spend time with him. Being out in nature, walks, Runs, if you're crazy, you know, whatever. Being out in nature is a place God created it, and so he is there. I don't know if you know this, but we have this little tiny river that goes through our town. It's beautiful. It's right there. It's amazing, especially at sunset. Take a walk with your phone if you don't want to go down to the river. Take a walk just around your block, but don't take your phone. Don't take your smartwatch or anything else that can distract you or send you messages. And just be. Make a, a playlist on your device with just Christian songs and, and commit to listening to that on your way to school or on your way to work, whatever. If transformation is our pursuit, then spending time with God is essential to our metamorphosis. The second thing is to spend time with others. Spending time with others is a core value 
of relationships being our priority. But it's not just relationships with other Christians. We need to have intentional relationships with non-Christians as well. Spending time with others helps transform us. In the story of Peter, we see him spending time with others and being open to having a relationship with Gentiles at God's behest. But it totally transformed his understanding of the gospel. And coming into contact with those who were different than him led the entire Christian community to change their theology. Relationships are what God uses to put some skin on himself and walk around. Not only are we called to be in relationship with God, we are expected to be in relationship with others. And I know, this is where all the non-people people go, oh, I'm not a people person. I don't like people. I don't want to connect with people. People annoy me. Okay, well, here's a hard truth for you, okay? You probably annoy God just as much as those people annoy you. And he continues to spend time with you. So we must learn from him, right? All right? Be intentional. Make your community relationships a priority. Do you know the names of the neighbors on either side of you? Just start right there. Do you know who's living on either side of you? When you think of your five closest friends, are any of them outside of your biological family or even your church? Are there organizations that you are part of and do you really care about the people there? Do you invest in them? Do you know them? Do they know you? And do they know that they could reach out to you if they're in a crisis, that you can help point them to God? Likewise, are you investing in the relationships right here in the BCC family? Are you in a small group? Have you taken the next steps class? Are you serving? Because if transformation is our pursuit, then spending time with others and prioritizing relationships is not optional. The third thing is to use your gifts. Peter himself writes in his first letter, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have a gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Derek reminded us that generosity is BCC's lifestyle. And that generosity is more than just writing checks and handing out cash. Although that is always welcome. Generosity has to be more than that. Because we possess so much more than just money. And God is telling us to be more like him, we have to be more generous with our gifts. And our gifts include talents. They include our time. They include our skills. They include our knowledge, our encouragement, our strength, our education, our passions, and our connections. And generosity is a lifestyle and a mindset that is always on the lookout to use something we have to bless others. Because if transformation is our pursuit, then we should desire to use our gifts so that everything we do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And the last one is to share your story. Each of us have a story. 
Most of us have a story of who we were before we were Jesus followers. And we have a story about who we've become as we continue to follow Jesus. And then there are all the stories in between. The prayers that God has answered. The hurts that we have experienced and that we are healing from or healed from. The times where you didn't know how God was going to provide, but he did. The people who have spoken truth to us or an encouraging word, the, the moment we needed it, right then. The still small whispers of God that helped you take action. And the big displays of God's power that helped you receive justice. The seasons of having to wait patiently for something that God has promised and not lose hope. All of these things are stories to share. And the reason we know so much about Peter is because of what was written down and shared with us. Three out of the four Gospels keep it private, the name of the person who cut off the ear of the, dis of the uh, guard who was coming to arrest Jesus. John is the one who straight up tells us it was Peter. <laughs> there were probably a lot of things that Peter was embarrassed about that didn't necessarily put him in a great light. But Peter knew that that wasn't really the point. There was a bigger purpose. And he knew that sharing his story wasn't really about him. That it pointed to Christ's work in him. His transformation. Your story is powerful. Your story cannot be argued with. No one can look at you and listen to your story and say, well, that's not true. It's your story. Your story can give hope to those around you. And there is no one else that can share your story from your perspective but you. There is no other you than you. Even if you are a twin, you are the only part of that twin that there is. And there are experiences that are universal to living life on this earth. Love, hope, rebuilding, purpose, thankfulness, and hurt, and betrayal, and grief and loss, and setbacks, and recovery. And while those experiences are universal, your perspective and your journey with God through them is comprehensively unique. Do you know your own story? Can you see God weaving his purposes through it? You might need to stop and share your story with yourself. Write it out. Talk it out. Tell your children, tell your spouse, tell your story, share it. If you pray for opportunities to share your story, he will give them to you. Peter reminds us in his first letter, he says, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. If transformation is our pursuit, then sharing our story helps us see our path and point others to God. 
despite the fact that we can't see transformation while it is happening, this does not mean that it is an automatic without any action on our part. God does not transform us against our will. And we can only transform to the level of the willingness and the effort that we put in. If you are not pursuing transformation, it will not be dropped on your lap. Where are you in your pursuit of transformation? Are you like Gospels Peter, rough around the edges, enjoying the perks of being with Jesus, but you would drop out if things got too rough or God didn't immediately answer your prayers? Are you like Acts, Peter? You're showing up and you're different than you used to be and people can see it, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Or are you like letters writing Peter, looking back and sharing wisdom of a life transformed? You spend time with God, you spend time with others, you use your gifts, you share your story. What's next for you? No matter which one you are, pursue transformation because there's more for you ahead. Regardless of where you find yourself on your journey, I pray that you will pursue an honest transformation process. I'm going to close today with the very last words of Peter's second letter. You must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.